0: James chapter 3, we're going to be reading just one verse, we're going to be reading verse 17, James 3, verse 17, here's what it says. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, Full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This is a wonderful verse to help us understand what wise living looks like. When we say that as Christians we are aiming for wisdom, that is not for us a vague term that can be defined a thousand different ways unique to each person. No, we have here in Scripture a wonderful description of what wise living looks like. And we should pray that we would be marked by every one of the qualities in this verse. But I want you to especially notice the term impartial. Impartial. Our God hates partiality. He treats all people equally, that is, under the same law and according to the same principles. There's not one moral law for you and a different moral law for me. Our God, who is all-wise, is impartial. And this is the truth I want us to hold on to as we walk through the next few minutes. Now a lot has been happening in our culture over the last several months related to the issue of racism. And Racism is a wicked sin, and one we've preached against and talked about many times here at Mount Hermon, both from this pulpit and in our small group meetings, Wednesday nights, Sunday nights... But what has really come to the fore in recent days is something called systemic racism, also sometimes called institutional racism. And we are seeing godly men and godly women view this issue very differently. And honestly, many Christians are confused. They're not sure what systemic racism is, whether or not it actually exists. If it does, what should we do about it? And so this morning, I want to rely on some biblical principles to hopefully lead us into some clarity, into some clear biblical thinking about this subject. We're not going to solve all the problems. <laughs> We're not going to fix all the issues in these few minutes. But I hope at least we can see some Bible light that will help us. We certainly need wisdom. And we should praise God that in James chapter 1, He tells us we should ask Him for wisdom. And when we do, He gives it lavishly and without reproach. And the most important way that He gives us that wisdom is through His Word. It's through verses like James 3.17, which remind us of the importance of impartiality. Treating people fairly the same, not preferring one over another. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take just a few minutes and summarize, and I mean truly summarize, some of what we have seen in the past about what the Bible says about racism. Racism. Really, I'm taking about 90 minutes worth of teaching, and I'm going to try and give it to you in 10 to 15, okay? And then the rest of our time, we're going to narrow in on this thing called systemic racism and try and bring some light to it. So first, summarizing, what are some of the basic biblical teachings on the issue of racism, So let me begin by defining our term. I'm defining racism as a form of pride. I think that's what it is. A form of pride in which a person believes himself to be morally, spiritually, or intellectually superior to a person of another skin color by virtue of that skin color. Again, racism is a form of pride in which a person believes himself to be morally, spiritually, or intellectually superior to a person of another skin color by virtue of that skin color. And when we come to the scriptures, we find that they put a dagger into the heart of racism. The Bible simply does not allow us to hold racist views while also claiming to hold to God's word. From the very beginning, the Bible declares the fundamental unity of the human race. Genesis 1, 27, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. All the way back in Genesis 1, we find that all humanity goes back to the first man and the first woman. We are all cousins. We are all cousins. People may have different skin colors, different cultures, different languages, different customs. The Bible knows of only one race. And that is the human race. What makes us human is that we bear the image of God. And there is no, any, no indication anywhere in the Bible that any people of any skin color are excluded from this great privilege, this great dignity of being God's image bearers. Nor is there any indication that one race bears the image of God any greater or lesser than another race. Uh, we certainly know that there was a time in our nation's history when slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person. Could it be that someone out there thinks that certain people are more truly human? Certain people bear the image of God more than other groups or races of People, Well, there's no evidence for that in Scripture. Genesis 1 teaches that man as a whole, male and female, whatever our race, bears the image of God. There's no three-fifths rule. All human beings are united in Adam. When Adam entered into the covenant of works in Genesis 2, he did so on behalf of every man and every woman. When Adam fell in the garden, it wasn't just white people who were affected, or Asians, or Africans, or Latinos. Adam fell and we all fell because we are one race with one federal head, namely Adam. So we must beware any view of human beings that makes skin color or race a defining mark of our identity. In fact, as we've said before, skin color alone tells you almost nothing about a human being. Choose any five random people from planet Earth who are white or choose any five random people from planet Earth who are black. They are likely to speak different languages, have different customs, be of very different ethnicities. They're not the same because their skin color happens to be the same. Thomas Chatterton Williams said, we are in danger of really reinvesting in the idea that race is real and that it cannot be escaped. That it is a fundamental category that defines us. That white people are essentially different from black people. We're creating a world where everyone alive today is a representative of thoughts and misdeeds and circumstances of their ancestors. He says, that is not a world I want to create. And I say, Amen. The Bible teaches the unity of the human race. The Bible teaches us the diversity of the human race. As we read through the Bible, we might be tempted to assume that the people in the Scriptures are just the same as you and me. But most of us in this room are Anglos. Most of us in this room are of European descent. The people in the Bible, they were not Anglos. Jesus was a Jew from the Middle East. To my knowledge, there is no reason to think that even now in heaven, Jesus does not appear in glorified form as a man of Middle Eastern descent. When we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ physically in heaven, we're going to behold that glory in the face of a Middle Eastern man. The people of Israel were not Anglos. Abraham, David, Moses, Elijah, our heroes were not Anglos. Neither were Paul or Peter or John. Christianity is not a white man's religion. And if we think it is, we're going to be in for quite a shock when we get to heaven. Genesis 10, we have the table of nations. It's a wonderful passage. If we were spending 90 minutes, we would walk through it. It's the record of how the human race branched out into all of these various tribes and nations. And mark this, God purposed and is glorified by the great diversity of the human race. God purposed and is glorified by the great diversity of the human race. God himself is one God, three persons. There's unity and diversity within God himself, and he is the definition of beauty. It was God's will that the human race fill the earth, and develop a vast array of different cultures and customs and languages, each bringing glory to his name in unique ways. And in Genesis 10, in that table of nations, we find that every people group on planet earth today traces back to one of Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. From those three came the 7,000 people groups that are on the earth today. Now listen to this. Acts 17 verse 26. Paul says this. Acts 17 verse 26. And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, none of the people groups in our world came about by accident. They developed and branched out in accordance with God's sovereign design. He determined where they would live. God has determined when one group of people will be stronger and another group of people will be weaker. All of these various kinds of peoples with their languages and their cultures and their customs, they've all come about according to his plan. This remarkable diversity is for the pleasure and the glory of God. And then another point to be emphasized from the Bible is this. God's redemptive plan is to bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. His redemptive plan is to bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth. You see, God created the thousands of people groups on planet earth so that he could bring gospel, Christ-centered blessings to each and every one of them ultimately filling heaven and filling the new heavens and the new earth, a kingdom with a citizenry that is going to be the most amazing melting pot you've ever seen. We think America's a melting pot. Wait till you get to the new heavens and the new earth and you see the most widely diverse group of people all one, fundamentally united in the love of God, and the service of God, peace and joy reigning supreme. We will worship when we see it. We see this in God's words to Abraham in Genesis 12 where he was told, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, in his seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Friends, from Genesis 12 on, we hear this constant refrain of blessing coming to the nations. God's purposes in this world have never been an Israel-centered purpose. It's always been a world-centered purpose. It's an all-peoples-centered purpose. God just worked through Israel to get the gospel to the world. So that in Psalm 67, God taught Israel to sing, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Why? Why was Israel to pray for God to bless their nation? That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The plan was always to fill heaven with people from all. All kinds of people groups. Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. I am God and there is no other. We are part of a story. And that story is God's plan to save the world through Jesus Christ all we know from Revelation that on the cross, Jesus ransomed by his blood people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation, which means we have brothers and sisters in Christ with every complexion of skin color. You have spiritual, and, and by the way, when I say spiritual brothers and sisters, that doesn't lessen the meaning, that heightens it. Your spiritual brothers and sisters are more your brothers and sisters than your blood brothers and sisters. You have spiritual Brothers and sisters who will be your brothers and sisters for all eternity with every complexion of skin color. And then finally, because the gospel tears down racial barriers, because the gospel works to to rid our hearts of the, the sinful racism and obstacles that we put in our own way, We should never as Christians allow skin color to keep anyone from being part of our families, our churches, or our leadership. And that would be another 30-minute part of the sermon if we had time to do it. But the wife of Moses, the story of Phinehas, the priest... The letters to the Galatians and the Ephesians, they all teach us that it is wicked to oppose someone coming into our families through marriage or adoption, coming into our church through membership, even coming into leadership as elders or deacons if our opposition is based on skin color. Martin Luther King famously taught us we should judge people based on the content of their character, not the color of their skin And we should rejoice when different shades of skin are brought among us. Because God is glorified in unified diversity and diverse unity. All right, that's the summary. That's the summary on the big picture of the Bible and racism. Now let's talk about the issue that's right in front of us. And it's been everywhere for the last several months. And you're probably hearing this term more and more. Especially if you watch the news at all or listen to the news at all and the issue is this thing called systemic racism so I'm going to use a definition uh, from a lady who was identified as an expert um, she was interviewed by USA Today and she defined systemic racism as systems and structures that have procedures or processes that disadvantage African-Americans. Systems and structures that have processes or procedures that disadvantage African-Americans. Now, of course, systemic racism can disadvantage other groups as well. Uh, But the focus of the headlines has been on African-Americans. So let me make four points first. Using this definition, we have to acknowledge, I think we should acknowledge, systemic racism is real. Systemic racism is a sad reality of our world and our culture. Systemic racism can be real on the policy level. Systemic racism can be real on the behavioral level. So let me explain. We have a friend, we're going to call him Stephen, okay? And Stephen works for a company that owns several buildings that rents out apartments. And it's Stephen's job to interview the people who want to rent these apartments. Now, if there is a policy in the company that says there are certain buildings with certain apartments that we do not rent out to blacks, that would be an example of systemic racism on the policy level, right? This company would have a policy that's not evaluating people on the content of their character. It's not evaluating people on their past ability to pay their bills or on what their income is. No, it's, it's making a judgment about people, denying them opportunities sheerly based on the color of their skin. That would be an example of racism. And because it's within the structure of the company on a policy level it would be institutional or systemic racism and our friend Stephen he may not like that policy at all he may think it's unjust but it's the policy of his company now thankfully we have seen more and more of those kinds of wicked policies disappear both at the governmental level And in most businesses, the vast majority of those policies that were in place 50, 75 years ago are gone. But there are some that may remain. More often, however, systemic racism that we're dealing with today is at the behavioral level. So more likely, Stevens' company does not have a written policy saying, we don't rent these buildings or these apartments to African Americans. If they do, they're violating the Fair Housing Act, right? Passed all the way back in 1968 by our federal government, it would be illegal for his company to have such a policy written down. But maybe the policy is more of an unspoken policy. That is, it may be that Stephen's company even states on its paperwork, we do not discriminate based on race. But in practice, behavior, in the culture of the company, that's in fact what they do. Maybe while Stephen was training for his job, he watched his trainer interviewing folks for apartments And he just noticed that whenever African Americans applied for certain buildings, his trainer would always say, "Mm, I don't think we have that availability for that right now. Would you consider this building over here? Stephen knew, but there was. There was availability. So without anything ever being said, a culture was being passed on. A, A way of doing things was being passed on. That's an example of systemic racism at the behavioral level. And while we have come a long ways since the days of segregation and the days of Jim Crow, there is certainly still that kind of partiality that may be taking place in businesses and organizations and elsewhere. So yes, given that understanding, I think we would have to say systemic racism is real. And second... Christians should grieve and stand against and seek to change systemic racism in both policy and behavior. Our God hates partiality. So should we. He hates unbalanced weights, treating one people according to these principles, but another people according to these principles whether we look at the laws that God gave to Israel, whether we look at the psalmist's cry for God to to care for the oppressed, whether we look at the stinging messages of the Old Testament prophets, or just the instructions that Christ gave to his churches in the New Testament, the consistent message of the Bible is that unjust, partial policies and behaviors ought to be detestable to us because they're detestable to God. So we should grieve them when we see them. We should stand against them as we have ability. And we should seek to change them. So if Stephen is working for a company, and that company has this policy written down, he should do everything he can to convince his company to change that policy. And it may come to the point where he has to decide whether or not he can continue to work there with a clean conscience the policy is not written down, which is much more likely, if it's more of an unspoken policy, the the culture of the company, he should still look for ways to stand against it. He should look for ways to change the culture. Repentance of systemic racism would be identifying the wrong, acknowledging the wrong, correcting the wrong. Uh, Correcting the wrong means moving to a place where all people are treated equally and fairly, evaluated the same way by the same principles and not by the color of their skin. So what kind of counsel might we give Stephen in this situation? Well, he can fight systemic racism in his company through prayer, through his example, through teaching, and through action. So first, and always first, he should go to God and he should pray about what he has seen in his company. He should take his concerns to the Lord. He knows this grieves the heart of God and so he should ask that God would give him the wisdom and guide his steps as he seeks to do what is right. Second, he should make sure that his own interactions with people of all kinds, as he considers all their applications, that he is the one operating with integrity that he is upholding the moral principles of God. Assuming this is an unspoken policy, he should be the first to break it, and to break it for individuals or families who would qualify to rent the properties. And if questioned or called to account for this, he should use the opportunity to teach, to speak the truth in love, to instruct, to help those around him see injustice partiality for what it is, even if it means speaking to his superiors to consider God's moral teaching on this matter. And then finally, whatever might happen to Stephen for being courageous and taking this action, he should do what he can to make change. Whether it's speaking to a manager, raising awareness in an appropriate way among other employees, having to report his company to the proper authorities if they're doing something illegal, This is what it means for a person to be serious about justice, serious about standing up for those who are being oppressed, taken advantage of by unjust weights, by partiality. Is it right for Stephen to join a march? Is it right for Stephen to protest in the streets and raise awareness about this issue? Certainly, though God will not condone violence, instigating violence, and Stephen should be careful that those that he is joining with are also truly standing for justice and impartiality and not something else. So we saw a mixed bag with the protests that happened recently, didn't we? There were some protests that were done peacefully, done well, and called for equality under the law, called for just policies that treated people equally. That's a good and right thing. That, That fits God's teaching in the Bible. Others turned violent. Others espoused the worldview of the Black Lives Matter organization, which actually calls for a new kind of injustice And promotes other kinds of sins, as we've seen before. And so Stephen would have to think carefully about this. Whether or not he would march, whether or not he would join a protest. But as a general principle, certainly it is right for him to take action. And so should we, if we're put in that situation. Third, we need to think wisely, which means biblically. Biblically. About the sin of participation. The sin of participation. So here's what I mean by that. There are many right now calling for us to confess and repent of participating in a racist system. Meaning, it might not be that you've said anything racist or done anything racist yourself, but you're guilty because you live in a country that has racism within it and within its structures and within its systems. And especially if you're white, you're benefiting from that. And so folks are saying, if you're just white in general, you need to repent of your whiteness. (laughs) Repent of your benefits from participating, of having your life interwoven In this fallen system. When folks speak of white supremacy today. This is often what they're referring to. The fact that white people have typically been the ones. Both in government and in businesses and in organizations. Who created these written down policies or these unspoken policies. That treated non-whites unfairly and with partiality. And and that is true. That's, That's historically true. American history is a history in which white people have traditionally held the positions of power. And because people are sinners, including white people, they often use that power to create policies, spoken or unspoken, that did show partiality. Now, that's not the whole story. Beware anybody that tries to make you think that's the story of American history, period. Of course not, right? The sins of white men and women in our history have come alongside many acts of heroism and courage that help make our nation a nation of freedom and a society of prosperity. And the Bible is clear that all people are sinners, that all people have injustice within their hearts, whatever their skin color. Nevertheless, Certainly, white Americans have had more power, and therefore their sins have often had graver consequences, especially for those who were being treated unfairly with partiality. So, is there a sin of participation? Are you guilty before God because you live in this country with its particular faults, its history of injustices, because your life is interwoven with its broken, fallen systems and structures? Does that make you guilty just by participation? Three points. We're going to go quickly, okay? First, Jeremiah and Ezekiel both teach that in these new covenant days, God does not hold us guilty for the sins of our fathers. Ezekiel is clearest of all. Ezekiel 18 verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So in the courts of heaven, I will have to answer for my sins. You will have to answer for your sins. Our parents will have to answer for their sins. Our grandparents will have to answer for their sins. We will not be punished for each other's sins. We will not be punished for the sins of our parents and grandparents. And thank God our children will not be punished for our sins. Frankly, praise Jesus, our own sins are plenty enough. And we should be thankful for the mercy of God. Second, as we continue walking through the book of Luke, and we watch Jesus preaching and teaching ministry, we will see that his emphasis was on calling people to repent of their own personal sins, not the political sins of their community or nation. When Jesus is teaching throughout Galilee and Israel, they're under the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had lots of wicked laws. The Roman Empire had full of unjust unjust laws. The nation of Israel had plenty of wicked policies in place. It's just not what we find Jesus typically preaching on. Jesus spoke to people about their own particular personal sins, their own pride, their own selfishness, their own failure to to love their own neighbor who's right in front of them. And Jesus' concern was not even mainly about this life and seeking to have a, a, a better utopian society in this world. No, he was focused on the world to come and whether or not people will find forgiveness and go to heaven and escape the wrath of God. And so as believers, we must keep that perspective. The truth is that every society is made up of human beings. And all human beings are sinners. So every society is broken. Every society is messed up. Every society is unjust to some degree or another. If there is a sin of participation in wicked systems and structures, there's not a person on earth who isn't guilty. Every person is guilty. There may be some guy living out in the wilderness by himself, <laughs> living his entire life isolated from other people, but even then, he's guilty of forsaking the fellowship and not loving others and all of that, right? So, so we're all guilty of this sin of participation. Wherever you find a community of people, you're going to find sinful systems and structures. That's the reality this side of heaven That's not saying we don't grieve the injustice. That's not saying that we don't seek to change what we see wrong in our governmental systems and structures, in our company systems and structures, if it's your neighborhood, organization, whatever it is. But the guilt of our own personal sins is plenty and enough to keep us on our faces, rejoicing in the mercy of God for the rest of our lives. And then that said, and to bring some balance... Third, about that, the Bible does teach that in this life, God will often deal with people at a corporate level for corporate sins. In other words, while you may personally hate abortion, and you may stand against abortion, and you may vote against abortion, this does not mean that God might not judge our nation for that sin, and you may well feel that judgment. We remember how Korah sinned against God and God caused the earth to swallow up his whole family. In the courts of heaven, we will not be held liable for each other's sins, but in this life, we may feel the winds of corporate blessings or corporate curses. So we should long for our nation to be as just as it can be. We should long for our city to be as just as it can be. We should long for the companies we work for and the organizations we're a part of to be as just as we can be. For God will bring his hand against partiality. He will bring his hand against injustice. He will bless communities. He will bless companies who seek to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly before him. God chooses to bring judgments upon our nation because of racism. We shouldn't expect that we will escape the sting just because we ourselves have sought to be impartial. And of course, the root of every sin is found in our hearts. Our last point on systemic racism is this. Let us beware the call to replace one kind of injustice with another. Systemic racism is real. We should work against it. But there is another danger lurking in all of this. It's the danger we've been talking about for over a year now. It's the ideology, sometimes called critical theory, form of Marxism. It's unbiblical. And right now, those who are leading the way in our society to fight against systemic racism, they're not fighting on the basis of biblical ideas of justice. They're not fighting systemic racism coming from a world worldview of we need to be impartial. They're coming from a viewpoint that fundamentally identifies you based on your gender and race. And they believe that those who have had the voice, power, and resources need to be silenced and that those who have not had it need to be risen up. It's just swinging the pendulum back the other way. It's simply changing who are the ones in power who get to be partial. In this worldview, people are still not being evaluated by the content of their character. They're still being evaluated by the color of their skin, or by their gender identity, or by their sexual orientation, or by their immigration status, but not them, who they are. It's one form of injustice replaced by another, and it is particularly dangerous and subtle. Because it's redefining the language we use. It's redefining right and wrong. It's redefining justice and injustice. It's redefining what it means to be moral. Be on guard. Let the Bible define your terms. So I have a whole other section here that we're going to have to skip. Remember this, our God is sovereign. He has called us to walk in humility, looking to him. Yes, he has called us to pursue justice, not in our own strength. He has called us to love our neighbor, resting in his love for us. So Mount Hermon, let us look to Christ for our strength. And in the joy of his love for us, let us stand up against all true oppression, all true partiality with the hope, the eager expectation of the day when Jesus comes back. And we will live in a new heavens and a new earth where we will never have to talk about this again. (laughs) Because it will be a world of impartiality, a world of fairness, a world of love, a world of unified diversity and diverse unity. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.